Well, we return this morning to our brief excursion in the Psalter, and so I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open to the book of Psalms once again, Psalm 85, this ancient, the Psalter being this ancient hymn book and guidebook of God's people. We, we checked another psalm off last week. We're going to check one off, and then we'll only have 104 to go. So we're making our way through it. Last week, as, as Bob briefly alluded to, uh, we were reminded by God's Word where hope and peace are found. And we were, we were encouraged through the Gospel, through the good news of what Jesus has done, to lift up our heads. Because we are known by the Lord. We are known by Yahweh. The maker and sustainer of all that is and our Savior. Psalm 24, where we were last week, was a communal song of procession, of, of, of ceremony as God's people processed and made their way to the city of Jerusalem. The psalm that we meditate on this morning is of a different variety. It's what we call a lament. And it's a communal lament. So it too would have been used in the life of God's people. We see that same musical term, Selah, in this psalm as we saw last week. It would have been used as a song to sing in various service to guide God's people in how they should think and how they should live. If you've been around for a while, we have looked at songs of lament, psalms of lament, and I've said this before, we as a people, we as Christians need to learn more and more how to lament, how to mourn. We need to wrestle and mourn with with the brokenness of our own hearts and cry out to the God who made us, who owns the earth and everything in it, who loves us with a steadfast love. Too often, I think, we gloss over the hard things in our lives and the things that we're struggling with and the things that we're upset about. And the injustice that we see. And so this is a psalm for all of us. As I did last week, before I read it, I want to give just a little bit of background. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah, this hymn-writing family uh, that we know wrote at least 11 other psalms in the Psalter. We don't know the specific context of of why this psalm was written or when it was written. And there may not be one specific context, but it sure seems and it sure fits in what we would call the post-exilic period in the life of God's people. And we'll get to that in a minute and I'll explain what I mean by that. Psalm 85, a great psalm. I invite you to listen with me, and if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, we stand out of honor because this is God's Word, holy, inerrant, and infallible. Listen as I read and follow along. Psalm 85. Lord, 
Yahweh, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord Yahweh will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Here's the bottom line as we come at this psalm. I am a man in need of constant revival. I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's not a long limb. You are people in need of constant revival. We collectively are a people in need of constant revival. It's just how it works. In a world where we are constantly warring against the desires of our flesh that will ultimately cause us to self-destruct, in a world where we are warring against the distractions of the world that offer everything but give nothing, And in a world where we are constantly warring against the spiritual devices of the devil, recognizing that we live in an enchanted world, that there is more than what we see. You and I, we become easily discouraged and depleted disciples. Do you feel it? Life can be hard, and following Jesus can be hard, especially when the the current of our culture is, is flowing so strongly in the other way. This week in this psalm is really, in many ways, a continuation and a building of where we were last week. Last week in our fear, we were encouraged to lift up our heads. And and this week in our frustration, in our depleted and dry state, Psalm 85 puts something in our hearts and it puts words on our lips. It gives us words when we struggle to come up with them. Which is why I love the Psalter so much. 
And it gives us direction when we don't know where to go. So if you're here this morning and you need grace, you need to be revived, you need more joy in your life, then walk with me for just a few minutes through these four stanzas. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, who knows you better than you know yourself, might minister to your hearts through His Word. Yes, this is a, this is a corporate cry. It, it's, a, it's a communal lament for all of God's people. But it begins with each of us individually. And then as we are changed individually, as we are renewed collectively, then we pray that spills out into our communities, into our cities, into our culture onto every continent. And so four stanzas, you can see it divided there in your English versions by some extra space. Four stanzas provide four steps for us this morning, for depleted and discouraged disciples. And the first one is this, verses 1 through 3. Remember grace given. That's where we start. It's where the psalmist starts. Remember grace given. Now many of you know that this concept of remembering, it's littered all over the pages of the Bible. In many ways, we in our modern world, we have more ways to remember than we ever had. I was in my parents' house over the holidays and I wandered into my dad's study and uh, pulled off some old photo albums from the 70s and the 80s, looking at these old yellowed photographs of, of a very young Nate and my friends and my family. And it's good to remember. Sometimes it's painful to remember. But the psalmist here is calling us to remember what God has done. To remember the grace that we have been given. He's not calling us to live in the past, but to look to the past. Just to review for those of you who may not be familiar with Old Testament history, particularly maybe for our kids, as they kind of set this in its place. Yahweh, the God who created everything, had entered into a relationship with this people, the people of Israel. And Yahweh promised to Israel that He would be their God and that they would be His people. But that relationship that God initiated, it had obligations. It had allegiance that was required. And Yahweh warned that if those conditions weren't met, consequences would come, and that's exactly what happened. God called His people, set them apart, and then immediately, barely out of Egypt, and they begin to rebel. And the distance that ultimately their hearts were after from Yahweh was given to them by Yahweh. 
And they were carted off into a foreign land for years and years. Moses warned about this in Deuteronomy 29. He said, people will ask in that day, why has Yahweh done this? Because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and went and served other gods and worshipped them. And that's what happened in Psalm 85. That's some of the context of what has gone on. Israel has been in exile, and now by God's mercy and grace, they have returned. They have returned to Yahweh. They have been given back the land of promise that they were ushered into after the exodus. But, but things just weren't the same. We have a picture of how things were in the books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is probably when this psalm was first crafted. In the days of Ezra. You see, people came back from, from Babylon, from being in exile, and things, things were rough. I mean, the city was lying in ruin, the fields in this agrarian society were in absolute disarray. Squatters had moved in and were opposing their, their work. Life, life was hard. So in the midst of this difficulty, what are they called to do? Remember. Remember grace given. Look at the first few verses in these verbs. They're all translated in the past tense in English. That's because they're in the perfect tense in Hebrew, which denotes a a past completed action. You were, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew, you turned. God's people could have looked to a number of instances. They could have looked to the Exodus. They could have looked to the wilderness wandering where God had done these things. The point is, you did this, Yahweh, you can do it again. But even more than appealing to, to the precedent that was set, this, this is who you are, Lord. We know that. This is who you are. You're a faithful God, and you are a God who remembers. We remember because you remember. Remember how Yahweh revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is why you're here this morning, right? This is why you're here every first day of every week to remind yourselves of who He is and what He has done to remember grace that has been given. And the Lord says, yes, remember me. You can do that in your own story. And we can certainly do that as a church collectively. Remembering how God has been faithful to us through difficult valleys, grievous sin, tragic death, and yet we remember. We remember and appeal to who God is. That's the first stanza. But where does the psalmist take us next? Well, verses 4 through 7. 
The second thing that we are asked to do, invited to do, is plead for grace needed. Plead for grace needed. Having remembered grace given, we plead for grace needed. And this is really the heart of the psalm. On the foundation of His character, on the foundation of who He has revealed Himself to be, we as His people can really make some astounding cries to the Creator and Sustainer of all that is. Three R's provide the centerpiece of this stanza. And this is our request. In order to express our, our need for new life, out of our stagnant state, the psalmist says, give us restoration, verse 4, give us revival, verse 6, and give us rejoicing, verse 6. The Bible is rich with this kind of language. Let me read a few passages. Isaiah 57, 17, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Titus 3.4, He saved us not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 29.19, The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Revival, renewal, newness, fresh joy. We've got to first recognize that we need these things. And that God is the only one who can truly give them. And that's exactly what the sons of Korah call us to do and remind us to do. They recognize that God is the author and finisher of salvation, that everything flows from it. And notice that they do this in the midst of unanswered questions. Do you see that in the second stanza? They're saying, Lord, you still seem angry with us. I mean, to put it in that context that I talked about earlier, why are there still some of my friends and family in Babylon? Why do we have all of this rubble to deal with still? Why are the fields ruined rather than ripe with harvest? Why are we being opposed day in and day, not, day out? And I think in doing this, the psalm writers, they remind us that we don't have to have everything confidently settled in our minds before we plead for grace needed. Right? We have our own questions. And this is the heart of the lament. Why is wickedness prospering, Lord? Why am I experiencing these continued health struggles? Why are our kids wandering from You? Why am I enveloped in a cloud of anxiety and sorrow? Why is our culture heading in the direction that it's heading? The psalmist reminds us that in the midst of all of that fog, we can plead we need to plead for the grace of revival in our hearts, in our homes, in our church. We need to plead for Yahweh to be who He has revealed Himself to be. In my study, I came across a helpful definition of revival that I'd like to read. It's from one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Ray Ortland. 
And he says this, revival is that direct touch of God upon us, visiting us with the fullness of his blessing. Revival is the risen Jesus moving among us with his felt presence, breathing upon and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Revival is the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, getting powerful, new traction at our real points of failure and anguish. We can't schedule revival. It is a miracle. It is our Lord Himself, the Living One, making our churches come alive. And yes, we can't schedule that, but we can plead for it. We can cry out for it. And we need to. But there's more. Stanza 3. gives us a bit more of how to do that. How to plead. We've remembered. We've pled. And now the third point, press into Jesus. Press into Jesus. And you're saying, wait a second, Nate. How do you get there? Jesus isn't mentioned in stanza 3. He's not mentioned in Psalm 85. And you're right, He's not. Not explicitly, but all of the Scriptures are about Him. And there's glimpses, there's shadows, there's echoes of Him everywhere. And so as we meditate on this psalm as members of the New Covenant and not as Jews under the Old Covenant, we see Jesus. We must see Jesus. For the Jews, these promises, they were first tied to their land. Right? To their way of life. To the absence of, of regional conflict. To agricultural prosperity. But for us, we, we look beyond those things. We look to a salvation so much greater. So when the psalmist looks outside of himself to the God of salvation, we look to Jesus. Let me walk you through it in the third stanza. When the psalmist says, let me hear what the Lord will speak, we remember that God has sent the final word, the promise long fulfilled, the prophet, priest, and king. When the psalmist says he will speak peace to his people, we can't help but think of the Prince of Peace who has brought us peace with God, who has brought us peace with one another. When the psalmist says his salvation is near to those who fear him, we remember Emmanuel, God with us, who came near in a way that we couldn't even imagine that we might be made right with God. When he speaks of glory dwelling in their land, we are reminded that the kingdom has come in Jesus. That we are learning to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as that vision of revelation that John gave us in Revelation 19, we, we look forward to that glory to come. You see, if we want, if we need the joy of our salvation restored, we need to press in 
to the person and work of Jesus. As was prayed earlier, as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, that they would have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled to all the fullness of God. This, brothers and sisters, is why I'm a broken record up here. Every week, it's the gospel. Because the gospel never gets old. Every week, it's Jesus. Because this entire book is about Him. We never move on from the gospel. It's not something we do and then we move on. No, every day we need it. Every day we need Him. And so press in to Jesus. Make Him primary, not secondary. Remember the peace that He purchased, the glory that He brought and will bring. And that leads us to the final stanza, to the final truth of what is coming. Verses 10-13, through anticipate the goodness coming. That's where the sons of Korah lead us. Not to despair. We don't end there. We don't end in a cul-de-sac at a dead end. But the psalmist stops with a long stretch ahead of it. And a blazing light way, way ahead. I love these verses. I love the picture that they paint. It's a picture of harmony. It's a picture of harmony that has resulted in God showing up. In one sense, the nation of Israel, they had a very earthly sense of this, right? They saw, you can, you can hear it in the language, they saw crops rising up, springing up as a result of the, the rain pouring down, as a result of the sun shining down, the faithfulness of Yahweh seen in the increase of their land. But there's so much more here. This is, this is what we call the already and the not yet Christmas Eve, light has come. And there's light coming again. There's light in the present darkness. But there's blazing light at the end of the tunnel. You see, the sons of Korah remind our hearts that Yahweh in His steadfast love has kept His promises. He will keep His promises. Jesus has ushered in an ever-increasing era of peace. God has given what is good and more goodness is coming. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Brothers and sisters, instead of fear and sullenness, We as God's people, having remembered and pled for His grace, having pressed into Jesus with the hope, the certain hope of what is still to come, we can exude grace. We can exude joy in Jesus. 
In Acts 8.8, Luke writes that as a result of, of Philip's ministry in the city of Samaria, as a result of God's work in their midst, people's reaction to that work, he makes this statement, there was much joy in that city. That's my prayer for us. Ever increasing in 2022, that there will be much joy in this place, much joy in our homes, much joy in our cities as a result of what God has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we confess to you a dryness, a discouragement, a despairing. And yet we also recognize that the Gospel comes to us like a spring of fresh water working its way into all of those parched places and giving us life and giving us hope. And so I pray, Lord, that You would take Your Word, that it would not return to You void this day, but would accomplish all that You intend for it to accomplish in the lives of Your people. For the glory of Your name. For the good of our city. And for the good of Your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.